As we proceed through Peter's letters, uh, we have seen, I think, I think most evident, that Peter's passion for the church uh, coming to the surface. Uh, if there's anything that Peter was known for, it was that he was a very passionate man. He was a man that was full of passion, to keep using that word. And he was so desirous that these churches here be built up, that they would be uh, solidified in what they knew about the faith. He didn't want to see them cast aside. He didn't want to see them lose their way. He wanted them resolute. He wanted them firm in the truth that Jesus is Lord. And I think that's one of the things that comes to the surface through this letter is that the church has no other authority, no other sovereign. It's Jesus. He's the one, uh, as he ends here this passage, he's the one who should be given all praise and dominion and honor forever. And as such, as he's been everywhere, I think, noticing and drawing out is that the church has no other obligation than to live in such a way to bring glory to their one true king. Such is why he's been talking about the different spheres of life in which we can bring him glory and the ways in which we can do that. Especially, as we have noted, I think especially in chapter 3, this sphere of baptism in which we are recognizing that we have a new authority. It's this, this moment of submission to a true and better king. Therefore, we might... Uh, be reminded of that a special phrase that perhaps you've heard or seen around soli deo gloria, which just really means glory to God alone. It's a tenet that came out of the Reformation during the 1500s when the Protestants were reforming the Church of Rome. Soli deo gloria was sort of this catch-all sort of belief that all of what we are is owed to God and that we, as those who have been, as he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, born again unto a lively hope, ought to live our lives in such a way to bring glory to God alone. He's the only one that is deserving of it. And this is true, especially in any season of life that we are in. No matter whether we are in want or whether we are in plenty, whether we are in a season of rejoicing or a season of weariness, God's glory is the only pressing matter on our lives. And especially that is true as Peter addresses a really important, I think, and I, I would say timely subject, which is the end of all things. <laughs> he says that in verse 7, the end of all things is near. Here in these verses, I think he informs these churches that he's writing to, these churches that had been dispersed uh, and that were uh, somewhat strangers and newcomers to the faith, how they can live for God's glory alone. Yes, even in, quote, the end times, even when it seems as though everything is falling apart. And there are three, I think, marks which ought to define the church, and by that, not just these churches here, but us as well, in the days that we are living in now and in the days ahead. And he says that by calling them stewards of this manifold grace of God. So how then are we to live as good stewards of this grace for the glory of God alone? Well, number one, I want you to notice in verse 7, we do this. A mark of our stance as those who have been called out by God as stewards of him. We do this by demonstrating unbending faith. Demonstrating unbending faith. Look at verse 7 again. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. 
I find it interesting, uh, perhaps you do as well, that Peter believed that he was living in the end of days. This is something that was, uh, I think, common among many who were teaching in these early days of the church. They were sure of the fact that the things that Jesus had promised would come about in their lifetime or very soon after that. Paul, I think, is very clear with that in 1 Thessalonians. And the Apostle John, who is the last of the apostles, perhaps, to be alive, was certainly sure that in his lifetime, the end of all things would be fulfilled. And I find it interesting because this assertion was made nearly 2,000 years ago. And yet, we haven't been uh, sort of realized, we haven't yet realized the end of all things, even though perhaps we would say that we're living in the end days of the end days. If you read John, he says almost the same exact thing as Peter does here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. That we are living in the end of all things. And it's very much nigh. Were they wrong then? Were they misinformed perhaps of the timing? (laughs) No, I don't think so. (laughs) In short, I would say ever since Jesus ascended, we've been living in the last days. And Jesus, I think, makes that clear. Actually, if you read those verses, it's fascinating to me that Jesus explains this very much to his apostles. Perhaps they didn't remember this detail, or perhaps they, uh, Jesus gave this detail for us. In verse 8, of course, or actually, let me, let me go to verse 6. Of course, this is his commission to his apostles uh, right before they were to go out into this new sort of world in which the gospel was to be preached, which was uh, really a testimony to Jesus' lordship and messiahship. He says in verse 6, When they therefore come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Notice they're asking him about the end times. Will you realize everything now? You have been raised from the dead. You are now the only true Messiah that anyone can ever recognize. The one who holds the power over death, the power of resurrection, is now to be your time. Is now to be the time and when all things would come to an end. And notice what he says. And he said unto them, verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. We are always living in imminent anticipation of Jesus' return precisely from these verses. (laughs) You're not supposed to know when these times are. He says you're not to know the times or the seasons which my father has already prearranged. It's always near though. It always is feeling just around the corner. Jesus' return, Jesus' establishment of his kingdom and the end of all things. And this isn't, though, meant to keep us in the dark. Jesus wasn't trying to uh, pull one over on his apostles, and neither is he trying to pull one over on us. It's not a lie when they said that we are living in the end times. They certainly believed it, and we certainly are still. This, I think, is, is meant to keep us on mission. Notice... If you're in Acts still, verse 1, or Acts chapter 1, verse 7, he says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But I'm going to give you power for something else, he says. 
God, in his own prearrangement everything, he has already ordained the end of all things. That's not, what, that's not what your business is. That's not what your task is. That's not what I have ordained and called you to do and fulfill. Actually, he says in verse 8, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you to do what? To be witnesses of me. Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth, unto the whole world, he says. This, I think, to me is so fascinating. He's not turning a blind eye to their question. He says, you have a different mission. Not to be sort of those who are so detailed and concerned with the end times. You have one mission, to be witnesses of me, my kingdom, my lordship, my messiahship. It's to keep them focused. I won't, I I hope I don't digress too much when I just say that. I think what this past week has revealed and perhaps what uh, the last year has revealed is that the church by and large has lost its focus on what its mission truly is. The church's mission is not in reforming Washington. The church's mission is being witnesses of Christ. We don't do that by flying flags at the state capitol. (laughs) We do that by preaching Jesus. Being witnesses to him in all walks of life. Not also, as Peter would say here, being frantic during the end of all things. Regardless of where we are in the timeline. Maybe perhaps you grew up with a different sort of understanding of the end of all things. I'm not going to say it's wrong. or I'm not going to say that my perspective is right. I always keep saying that we'll all find out in the end who was right and wrong at the same time. Regardless of where we are in that timeline of when we're supposed to be expected of certain things, Peter's counsel remains precisely the same. Peter's counsel is what? Verse 7 of chapter 4. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. You see, one of the ways... I would say the clearest way in which we steward the manifold grace of God during the end of all things is by approaching the end of all things, just as Peter says, being sober and watchful, which is, you know what he's really just saying there? He's using just a really lofty way of saying, just be calm and collected. (laughs) Calm, cool, and collected are essentially what those words can be translated to. Sober and watch mean essentially the same thing. They come from a Greek word, which means to be sound, of composed mind. I think Peter, of course, is speaking directly to the human heart because he knows what the human heart is given over to. Wild theories and conspiracies and manic thoughts about the end of all things. And we, in our... Perhaps wrong minds, but we would say in our right minds, we are given over to trying to make sense of it all. I'll be honest with you. I'll confess to you tonight that we're a small group, so I can confess to you. I won't. I won't. uh, I'll just pretend that we're not live streaming. (laughs) There's been many times in the last 13 odd months when I've been given over to that. Manic thoughts concerning the ends of all things. (laughs) In the state of the church, one scroll through social media will do that to you. I've had to greatly change the way I interact with that just for my own soul. 
It was interesting to me that I was talking with my dad, and he won't mind if I share this, I hope, that he's had to do the same thing. He's not on any sort of social media per se, but his interaction with news, watching it, and all those sorts of things. Because as Christians, as those who believe in the Lordship of Christ, we aren't given over to wild, frantic thoughts, to that make us fret, that make us stress about the end of all things. Certainly it, is, it can be disconcerting to know that this present life will come to an end one day. But Peter is, remind, is reminding his church here, be sober and watchful. You don't have to stress about the end of all things because your Lord has already prearranged them. Your job is much different. In Peter's day, and I would say just like ours, as I said this morning, that the heart of man hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. Even since the creation, if you want to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, it hasn't changed much since Adam and Eve first sinned. <laughs> we're still dealing with many of the same things. And that just like here in Peter's day, there were those that were wanting to sort of brandish some sort of superior knowledge about the end of all things by setting dates and times on it. They were so confident in Christ's return that they would say, he's coming back at this specific hour. The most famous example of this, I think, in uh, the recent lifetimes is that 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988, which, of course, has come and gone. <laughs> Interesting book if you pick it up. <laughs> if you can find a copy, I'm sure it's still available on Amazon. It's interesting to me, though, that there are many who wish to sort of brandish this superior knowledge. This is what Paul would fight against here in the early days of the church. is the thing known as Gnosticism. This idea that there's some sort of higher knowledge that has actually led to salvation. You can see that happening in our day, too. That there's superior knowledge that you have to be clued into to know what's really going on. To know that all of how to make sense of all of these events that we're seeing unfold before us. My friends, no. We are given over to Jesus Christ. Who in his spirit and his grace allows us to be calm and cool and collected. And I don't mean to say that tritely. I mean to say that passionately just as Peter was saying to this church. And I'm preaching to myself that I don't have to stress about the state of Jesus' kingdom. Because <laughs> you best believe he's not stressing about it. <laughs> I think more than ever before, I've been preaching to myself, and I'm even sure of it, even though I've had to preach it to myself several times. God is not wringing his hands at the state of our world. He's not nervous, he's never been anxious. He's never been more certain of what he's doing than he is right now. I think about our own day. I don't have this in my notes, but I was just thinking about it recently. In the dark night of the soul, to use that poetic term, that must have been going through the minds of the apostles when Jesus was dead. You know, for three days, their worlds were shattered. The one that they lived with was dead and gone for all they knew, even though they should have known better. <laughs> if you remember our study through Mark, there were so many instances when Jesus was assuring them that he's going to die, but in three days he's going to come back. And yet, John chapter 20 finds them locked in a room. 
The doors were shut, it says. The doors were jammed because they were fearful of the Jews who would come and find them and perhaps do unholy things to them because of their affiliation with this now uh, crucified traitor Jesus of Nazareth. This Galilean who had stirred up so much trouble. All the while they were sort of blind to what God was really doing. I wonder if that's where we are too. In sort of a dark night in which Jesus is doing something far more remarkable than we could ever know. Such is why we are given and we're given this reminder to be sober and watchful. Because the one who has prearranged all things is still ruling over all things, even in our present moment. Yes, even in our present darkness. The things which make up our world, which seem to fret us and to stress us. It's hard to ignore them oftentimes. But Peter's reminder here, I think, is that the best mark, the truest mark, of any Christian who believes in the lordship of Jesus Christ and his kingship is to exhibit an unbending faith in his arranging of all things. That everything is accomplished in his timing, in his way, which is far unlike ours. Far superior hands than yours or, or mine have already planned all of these end times events. Hands who formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into him the life of his spirit. That same God has prearranged all of these events before us. His sovereign fingers are keeping all times moving forward according to his purposes. So our duty is what? <laughs> it's not to be given over to fear, but to be sober and watchful. I think of that verse. I think it's in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Well, let me see if I can find it. Second, uh, I think it's 2 Timothy 1, 7. Which is a profound word to us. Yes. God, Paul says, hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Sound mind is precisely what Peter is talking about here in chapter 4 of his first letter in verse 7. Being sober and watchful unto prayer. Trusting wholeheartedly in this one who is holding the world in the palm of his hands. Sober and watchful unto him. Unbending faith in this God. Secondly, not just by, sh- by demonstrating unbending faith, but by showing unceasing love. Look back at 1 Peter 4 verse 8. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Peter proceeds to show that this watchful spirit, this prayerful spirit, does not make us sort of closed off from reality. It doesn't make us sort of cloistered and isolated. Actually, just the opposite is true. This sort of soberness, this watchfulness, this heavenly mindedness, if I can use that phrase, actually makes us fervently loving to those who are around us. 
And above all things, have fervent charity. This, I think, is one of the best scriptures to refute one of uh, Johnny Cash's famous assertions. (laughs) That you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. (laughs) Johnny Cash sang that song. His lyrics go like this. No earthly good. You are no earthly good. You're so heavenly minded. You're no earthly good. You're shining your light right and shine if you should. But you're so heavenly minded. You're no earthly good. (laughs) I I think I get what he's trying to say. But Peter, I think, here is adamant about just the opposite. Actually, just the opposite is true. Is that the best expression of heavenly mindedness is fervent charity among yourselves. The best way we can showcase that we have this God who orders all things. And this one who is not afraid of, of what is going on in our life. Is to be fervently charitable among those who are around us. Fervent. Is the operative word. It means unceasing. There's nothing that can bring it to a stop. There's nothing that can hinder it. That can make it be obstructed. It's fervent charity. Or the word is there. Agape. Love. A sacrificial love. And such is what should define those. Who know whose hand is holding and ordering and arranging all of the events that are before us. You see, we are not given over to miserliness during the end of all things. As though we must isolate ourselves, as though we must hoard things for ourselves to prepare for the end of all things. No, we don't have to protect the possessions with which God has given us. We can act charitably and hospitably and fervently because we know that the end of all things is already certain. You see here, as Christians, we are free to live with open-handed generosity, as he says here. And above all things, verse 8, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Hoarding. Stockpiling sort of resources and supplies would indeed be wise if we didn't know the end of all things and how it was going to play out. (laughs) It would be wise for us to keep all we can because we don't know what's going to happen. The apocalypse is coming. You see, though, our calmness and our collectedness regarding the future days... That are ahead of us ought to translate in just a sincere charity, a sincere generosity for those around us. It frees us up to hold these things loosely. Knowing that there's a more important important work going on. Such is why he says in verse 10. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. What we have received, we are responsible for dispensing and sharing. Minister the same. This is all of ministry in a nutshell. You're just giving what you've been given. You're just automatically giving what you've been giving. You read and you read, you share and you share, and then you read some more and you share some more. You're ministering here, serving there. This is what he's talking about. 
The abounding gift of God's grace, this manifold grace, which is just uh, multiplied upon multiplied grace, as he's talking about here. This is meant to be shared. And this is something, by the way, that Johnny Cash did get right. (laughs) He says the gospel ain't gospel until it's shared, and I would have to agree with him. It's not meant to stomp on you and me. It's not meant to just stomp when it comes to us and we know that we're forgiven. No, we are called, as we spoke about last Sunday morning, called to be heralds, newsboys, extra, extra. Hear this news of forgiveness. Here, Peter uses a different picture than perhaps a newsboy. He uses actually the term minister, which really is just a word that means to serve or to wait upon. Which might make you think, and rightly so, it might stir up the image of a waiter in a restaurant. (laughs) And indeed, Christians... That's what we are. Waiters who are serving up, if you'll forgive the metaphor, the delicacies of God's manifold grace. That's what we're serving. Tending to each patron's needs as they see fit. And we do so without grudging, without sort of fearfulness. We do so with fervent charity and generosity. I would say that this is the most responsible, the most sane thing that we can do. When the end of all things approaches, is showing unceasing love for our neighbors. One Baptist minister, B.H. Carroll, he wrote that. Christian sanity is manifested in brotherly love as well as upon any other point. (laughs) The end times and talking about the end times can often bring some insane thoughts and views and and theories and and viewpoints that can lead to even more insane actions. (laughs) The sanest thing that we can keep on doing is loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And even those who are not our brothers and sisters in Christ. The sanest thing, one who has been redeemed, one who has been, in chapter 1, verse 3, born again unto a lively hope, is to be so certain that that hope is real, that we can be so generous with ourselves, with our time, with our possessions, with our abilities. This, I would say, is the preeminent quality of all of God's children. Charity. You would know the word as love, as we said, agape love. And notice, I love how he knows the human heart so well. (laughs) Do this without grudging, without displaying any sort of hedging, without any sense of hesitation or expectation of return, without any expectant uh, ounce of reciprocation. Give. Give yourself away. Because you know that your hope is so certain because God is king. And you've been born again through his grace. So we demonstrate unbending faithfulness. We show uh, unceasing love. But number three, as we approach verse 11, we do, we, uh, we sort of stewards God's grace in the end times by preaching unyielding truth. By preaching unyielding truth, notice verse 11. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. 
If any man minister, let him do it, as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Excuse me, Peter's aim through this short section, talking about end times ethics, so to speak, has been to build up, to furnish, to arm the souls of these who are in these churches with such abounding confidence during the end of all things that he says is at hand, it's near. And I think this confidence is nowhere better expressed than in the message that they were called to preach. Because here, he says here that the best way... That we can live as good stewards of God's grace is to speak this truth unyieldingly. Notice he says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. You see here, Peter's leaving nothing to doubt. Peter is, is, is leaving nothing to sort of uncertainty as to where this fervency comes from. As for where this calmness comes from, this collectedness comes from, where this charity comes from. It comes from knowing that what we have comes from God himself. We didn't make this up. We didn't conjure this up in our secret closets and make up all these stories about this Messiah and how he rose from the dead. All those theories and wild conspiracies about his resurrection, those aren't true. These come from the oracles of God. They are truth. Truth without equivocation. So he's saying if we speak, let it only be God's words. Because his words are true. And if we serve, as he says there, let us serve in his spirit. Why? Because he says there that in all things God may be glorified. It returns us back to what we talked about at the beginning. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. This is the only way in which these things can be found. His glory is the only thing that matters. You see, beyond... All doubt, the words which make up our message are not our own. As he says here, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We don't make up the things that we proclaim. We speak the truth. Which is why it's dangerous whenever anyone in church tends to get away from scriptures. We did not come up with these words, Peter said, and you can best believe that we will not preach anything that is, that is made up. Martin Luther, commenting on this chapter, says the same thing, that no one is to preach anything but what he is sure is the word of God. That's why I'm always nervous when a pastor shares his opinion. When he gets on these, I, I try not to share my opinions on anything that is not in scriptures. God, I don't want to speak anything other than the oracles of God. Because his truth is the only truth that matters. And same with his glory. But you can be sure tonight that the words of scripture are true. That yes, the end of all things might be at hand. But there is a more sure word of grace. Which tells us that the king is also ruling and reigning on his throne. Therefore we are given to unbending faith. We are given to unceasing love. And we are given to preaching unyielding truth. These words are not true because we say so. They are true because he has spoken them. They are his oracles. Therefore we can bank our entire lives on them. 
These are the distinctive features, I would say, of those who have found that that they are, or not they have found, but God has found them and borne them again through his resurrection. And I would say that these ought to be the distinguishing marks of our faith in these last days. Faith, love, and truth. Things that ought to define us, ought to characterize our lives as we interact with those inside the church and those outside of the church. Let us be good stewards, as he says here, of the manifold grace of God. Knowing that the abounding grace that we have received as a free gift through Jesus' Son is not something that we are to hoard. It's something that we are to freely dispense Because we are waiters serving up God's grace. I'm thankful for these words. And I'm thankful to be a steward of God's manifold grace. And let us be happy stewards of the same. Let us pray.